Welcome to The Lead from New Lines Magazine. I'm Faisal Yafai, and this is a podcast where we delve into some of the biggest ideas, events, and personalities from around the world. By now, we are all familiar with the term post-truth, that we are living in the post-truth era. But while truth has been the media's foremost concern in the era of fake news, there's been surprisingly little reflection on what it actually means in the first place. We're exhorted to defend it from authoritarian leaders and conspiracy theories alike, but we seldom consider what precisely it is that we're defending. My guest today is someone who's considered that topic at length. I'm joined by Sophia Rosenfeld, a historian at the University of Pennsylvania. She's the author of Democracy and Truth, A Short History, in which she asks whether democracy really does require the truth to function and what that even means. Sophia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. We should start by going back to the basics. So, of course, we all think we know what the word truth means. But actually, when you interrogate it, it isn't nearly as straightforward a concept as we tend to assume, is it? No, that's absolutely right. I think one of the odd things about truth is that we think it's a really important idea, but we rarely think about what it is and how it functions. And it turns out that it's actually a kind of complicated idea. Sometimes it's a moral position, right? It's Mm -hmm. the opposite of lies. And sometimes it's more like an epistemic question or something about knowledge. It's the opposite of a belief or misinformation or something that we can't solidly say is the case. And those get confused a lot. But truth truth is definitely a slippery idea. It's something that I think seems straightforward enough. So if you take a a statement, um, man-made climate change is happening, that Mm -hmm. seems like a straightforwardly true statement. But then, of course, the only reason that we're saying it is because not everybody would agree. (laughs) Yes, that is one of the interesting things about common sense is that often it doesn't get articulated at all because to state it is to state the obvious, you know, to say... Mm. that fire is hot is a sort of exactly. silly right. thing to say, right? Because right. It's, we agree. We don't need to have stated that. As soon as you're saying something, there's some possibility that, generally speaking, that there's some room for dispute. Although that's more true about what I would call factual truths than logical truths. So two plus two equals four is more of a logical truth. It's hard mm. to dispute. Right. A factual one, the one you just gave about climate change, well you know, already we're going to have to start talking about what's climate and change in what sense. And do you mean man-made climate change? Or do you mean just that the climate itself changes day to day? That's, yeah. you know, there's, we're already in a slightly gray zone, even though what you, your comment is largely factual. And why don't you refer to those terms as political truths? So that's an interesting question. Political truths tend to be well, it's a, it's a funny category altogether, political truths. Politics itself is made up of many truths that are not really explicitly political. The politics is what happens when you manipulate or do something with those truths. They become political, I suppose, when they are really contested. So the fact that I'm talking to you from Philadelphia today, the temperature is in the 40s, and I tell you that, yeah. and that's really not a political truth. Right. But as soon as I sort of say it's a lot warmer this time of year now than it was last year, and then you sort of say, well, maybe that's climate change. Then somehow, because that's a contested issue, my statement has meaning it didn't have before. But the contested part of the statement only comes in its motivational power to do something. Like if you say, well, the climate is hotter now, 
but hey, that's life. Let's just keep talking. No, you're saying the climate is hotter now and therefore we are on a on a bad road and we need to do something to change it. That's the contested part. In, in, a, in a perfect world, I suppose, we agree on a certain number of facts and then we disagree about what, how to interpret them and what to do about them. But we agree on the sort of basics, like we agree that we're both using a Fahrenheit or Celsius scale, that we can record the temperature accurately and that we can compare it over years and that we can figure out when there's been change. Hmm. The same way you might as a historian, that's what I am, I know more about that than climate, um, tell you that something happened. And, you know, we could sort of say the Civil War began on X date. But then somebody might say, well, that's, that's sort of factually true. But what if I think of the Civil War in slightly different terms? Maybe right. it started in a different place. Right. And if I say the Civil War was fought in the U.S. largely over slavery, well, most people would agree with that, but there's going to be somebody who comes in and says, well, that's partly true, but another interpretation is X. So even some of our most basic facts can quickly turn political as soon as they are subject to contestation, but there isn't necessarily something inherently political in them. And is that because in order to evaluate truth, you need to have some version of a social undertaking? that you talked about the contestation matters. You can't simply evaluate the truth on its own terms. You need to have it as part of a contest. Is that right? Or is yes. that only, yeah. No, I think you're, you're onto something interesting. You've put it in an interesting way. But I would say that is very much the case, that the way truth works, especially in democratic settings, is that we don't authorize any one person or one institution or even one method, say, as the way to know something. Mm -hmm. That is wonderful in certain ways, but of course it also makes knowing anything very messy because generally we know things when everybody sort of agrees about them. Yeah. So, for instance, if go back to your example about temperature. If we didn't all agree about the scale in which we were going to measure temperature, my reading wouldn't agree with your reading, right? We've had to have some kind of baseline agreement. And we've had to say that both scientists and ordinary people like me are going to use the same metric and that yeah. we're going to come to some kind of tacit agreement about the rules of the game before we even start making any claims. So when it's very, so in a case like that is a very straightforward one, measuring the temperature. But plenty of other things are always a little bit contested. And because we don't let anybody sort of tell us exactly what's true, and that's where, I mean, that's really knowledge production as much as anything else. It's the sort of endless ongoing conversation with the sense that it's always revisable and nothing is fully dogmatic that we can arrive at some kind of basic agreement. And I think what we're worried about today is that those very low-level kinds of agreements yeah. are increasingly hard to come by. That's, that seems to be the major problem. That's why I like this concept of political truth. But even yeah. if, we try to, if we try to think about your, your distinction between logical truths. So logical yeah. truths seem to me to be relatively straightforward. And then maybe slightly above that are scientific truths. I mean, the temperature is a good example. I have no mechanism for measuring temperature. I trust right. that the temperature reading on my phone, in this case, tells me the truth. I have no way of knowing. You know, it's a little bit like colors. You have no way of knowing if the color that you are seeing is actually the color that other people are experiencing. 
We need other people to tell us what's true about lots of things. That's why the whole idea of sort of doing your own research, quote unquote, is often so silly because mm. we don't have the ability to determine what's true about tons of different things that we basically have to take on expertise, whether yeah. that expertise could be electronic, like your phone you just suggested, or it could be what the doctor told you, or right. maybe you don't say one doctor, maybe the medical profession as a whole. But we can't go out and say, um, I can't go tell you what the temperature is today in China, and certainly without reading about it. And right. I can't even measure the temperature where I'm sitting except by instruments that somebody else has created according to a scale that somebody else has created. Hmm. And so all of that puts us, if you think of it like a hierarchy of truths, that puts us in a very difficult position when we move up from logical truths to scientific truths mm -hmm. to then towards, I'm not saying those are the only, that's the only part of the hierarchy, but when we get to political truths so that we're kind of contesting, we've moved quite far away from things that we can just measure for ourselves. We've ended up in a, in a sphere where it is incredibly difficult to know what is true and, and this is where we come to the aspect of populism, we end up believing what people say based on how many people are saying it. Yes, or who is saying it. Or who is saying or, it. Right, it's either the, the, the number of people saying it or the people I want to believe are right are saying it. Right. And yes, and, and, and I might even add to your list of kinds of truths. I'd put sort of scientific and historical ones in a similarly kind of factual category often, though mm. they're always sort of hypotheses of various kinds. But then there's moral truths, too, which are even harder. Um, some of them are pretty basic. You know, killing someone is generally bad. But then there are kinds of moral truths that we sort of agree to disagree about, which would be one reason that in most democracies, there isn't a state religion, precisely because mm. we've sort of agreed to let people disagree about what some people might call higher truths, or yeah. moral truths. Or even if they there is a state religion, people kind of they do this they do this odd thing where all religious groups kind of accept that there are many ways up the mountain. That's another possibility. Which is another yes, way, exactly. a strange way around it. Right, right, yeah. exactly. But you brought yes. up you brought up what is an argument for more authority, and I thought that was a very subtle way of moving into part of what you talk about in the book. Because when you think about truthfulness, you talk about how truthfulness in 17th century England was understood as a trait that was specific to a certain kind of educated gentleman. And that actually there's a certain, I mean, I want you to tell the story, but there's a certain positionality about that, about what can be considered to be true, depending on who is saying it from what perspective. Yes, absolutely. I mean, if you go back through European history, say, you'll find that all kinds of people's authority depended on their social position. So even who could be a witness in a courtroom or mm. who could be trusted to do a scientific experiment that would yield results that were valuable. Often that person was somebody who was thought to have all the qualities that made that person a gentleman of sorts. And there wasn't credentialing in the modern sense of, you know, you get a license and you have a degree. We've replaced that to a certain degree. We've said expertise is now generally a function of your job position and your training and your licensure. But once upon a time, that would have been much more the case of your social standing. The things that made you virtuous were partly that you were well-born and well-trained in a, in a different, looser sense. Now we have the question of 
whether you mentioned populism, Hmm. whether experts know more than the rest of us. And that, of course, has become a very contentious issue as of late. The most obvious manifestation, we could talk about climate change, but we could also talk about something like COVID-19. Right. And that show, I mean, the COVID example is a good one because it shows you that these are not esoteric questions. These are questions that really are part of the fabric of everyday political life. I mean, of course, COVID is, is something that it wasn't merely about whether people believed that this thing existed or whether the vaccines worked. It became a question of legitimacy. Did governments have the ability to change our entire lives because of this thing they said existed? There's, there was the legitimacy question, and there was also the question as to whether doctors or public health officials were essentially to be trusted or were self-interested in some way that made their pronouncements suspect right. rather than helpful directives. And maybe the COVID example is something you talk about in the book about how modern democracy is you explicitly conceive of it as a balance between the wisdom of the crowd and the judgments of, and you call them intellectual elite. That's, that's an explicit balance. First of all, I should ask you to kind of explain that, but then I want to come back to the COVID example where I think there's a, there's an interesting thought experiment there about the wisdom of the crowd and the elite. But first of all, when you think about modern democracy, you do conceive of it in that way as this balance between populism and an elite. I do, because I think from its very earliest 18th century foundations, we're talking about modern democracy now, not the ancient version, there was some understanding that the people couldn't rule themselves just directly. They needed somebody, representatives, and then eventually other kinds of government officials to sort of aid in the process of turning popular opinion into workable strategies. And that meant, really, that all truth claims were going to have to go through a kind of complicated process whereby the people speak in certain ways, but the people also receive information from other sources mediated by newspapers and that sort of thing. Nowadays, podcasts and radio Mm. and all sorts of other instruments, but that there would be sort of truth would be coming from above, from experts going downwards, but also that experts would be listening to the people. And whether that's through voting or writing op-eds in the newspaper or protests or petitions, there are many ways people speak to local contests of all kinds. And mm-hmm. that ideally, this kind of messy back and forth, which would happen at all kinds of intervals, would keep both sides sort of honest in the face of the other. And slowly but surely, they would work their way towards a kind of loose consensus. Now, that consensus might change over time. We might look back at any number of things and say, how could we have ever thought that in the past? Look what we think now. And we might do that, say, even with something like COVID might look really different to us in 10 years. But that's the messy process in a democracy whereby truth is arrived at. And so an example might be something like um, the back and forth, uh, a changed minds about the harms of smoking cigarettes you know, happen in different ways till we finally have basically gotten to a point where most of us, even smokers, will essentially agree, we know now, meaning it is true, that smoking is deleterious to our health, could could cause cancer. But Um, they knew that 
back then. It just wasn't widely publicized. It wasn't wide. It wasn't widely enough known to become kind of a truism, an obvious statement. And of course, a lot of people knew it before everybody agreed to it. But something ceased to be that political. That's not. And when you were talking about political truths at this moment, that's not one of the things we find, you know, most important to fight over. Right. It's not contentious anymore. Even it's though it's really not. Yeah, even though there's a lot of business interests that would make it seem as if it were contentious, that moment has passed. Right. So we might have some fights still about how much should you tax cigarettes and you know how should cigarette advertising be handled or not. But we've mm. we've sort of agreed on the, the basic fact at the core of that claim. Now that could yeah. change again, but that's just where we are right now. But there as you pointed out early on, there are other kinds of claims we are having trouble sort of getting to that point on. And it's a little bit mystifying to many people. Why? Why things that seemed like they should be easy to settle have become so contentious? So give me an example. So, well, some of the big ones in the last year, and this is really since I've written the book even, one of them is about um, the legitimacy of elections in the United States, right? That we basically agreed that when we were told who won the election, we all agreed that this is how we do elections. These people are trusted with counting and we may hate the results, but they are the results. Right. And that's been difficult to to solidify this year. A substantial percentage of Americans either believe or profess to believe that the election was stolen, that they've been lied to by election officials everywhere. I mean, in the two examples that we've talked about, yeah. um, COVID and now elections in the US, in both of those cases, to talk about this balance between the wisdom of the crowd and the intellectual elite, mm-hmm. in both of those cases, there is a judgment by the elite that is true. I was going to say demonstrably true, but yeah. not demonstrably true. Let's just say true. Mm-hmm. There is a, a fact about COVID-19 and there is a fact about the election count. But then the wisdom of the crowd comes in and says, well, we don't accept the elite decision. Mm -hmm. That isn't, you have conceived of modern democracy as a balance, but that doesn't seem like it is a very good balance. It seems like a straightforward problem. So that's exactly what, when people say we might be entering this era of post-truth, they generally mean. They mean not just that people are lying more, that's kind of hard to measure, but that it's very hard to arrive at any kind of basic agreements. There's a distrust of sources of authority, especially expert authority, whether that's from inside or outside the government. And most, maybe most importantly, that not everybody sees this as a problem, that in fact it's sort of accepted at this point that truth is always a little bit partisan, that everybody's going to have their own spokespeople, that there's no way we're ever going to agree because basically everything's spin. Everything is a little bit true and a little bit of a lie, and yeah. you kind of want your own people to win. So why yeah. are we being so uptight about getting things accurately? But it does matter, doesn't it? Well, before I say whether it matters or not, I want to ask you if you think that that balance that you talked about because of it, because it's been upset slightly, that that is the root of these current crises of authority. I don't think I would say the root, but it's certainly not helping. And I, I should say, just to clarify, that 
I don't think we lived in some sort of golden age of truth where everybody agreed about everything and then suddenly it, we fell off a cliff and everything changed. In fact, yeah. because of the very nature of the way democratic truth has arrived at, we always fight about what's true. And what you called political truths are always going to be contested. They're like, you might even call them sort of political footballs or something like that. That said, we seem to be in a moment in which we're having particular difficulty, even with the very, very low level kinds of agreements um, that would constitute kind of basic truths. Mm. So for instance, we'll go back to your climate example. In a, We might easily, in, if we were operating in a slightly different world, be able to agree that the in fact, something's out of whack. The planet has been getting hotter. Now we're going to disagree vociferously about exactly what caused it. And we're going to disagree vociferously about how best to approach it and how radically to curtail the kinds of practices we're engaged in. That's politics. But to have a good debate, we have to first agree that there's a problem and that we are, in fact, on a, living on a warming planet. But if Half the voters and half their representatives and some number of um, media say, no, actually, nothing's getting warmer. You know, really, that's that's just a mistake where the planet's exactly the same as ever. And this is just a normal cycle. Well, then we can't even begin to have an argument about what to do about it because we don't agree what the problem is. So I think it's that is the, is the hardest part. But isn't that because you are trying to draw a distinction that people who are who, who want other people to be motivated by the truth of climate change or the truth of any political truth, they don't draw that distinction. They don't draw a distinction between climate change is happening and then separately, what are we going to do about it? For them, those two are inextricably linked. The very fact that there is such a thing as climate change means that it must have the motivational power for us to do something about it. Yes, that's nicely put too. And I do think that one of the responsibilities of elected officials, as well as spokespeople for government agencies, is to make those kinds of distinctions, to clarify for all of us, and the media too, for that matter, to make clearer to us what constitutes these kind of low-level agreements, what we might call facts, and then why there needs to be a policy debate about them, or even a moral debate about them. And mm -hmm. I think you can think of any number of kind of public situations in which we could have those kinds of arguments. But if we can't even agree on something like, you know, is the unemployment rate up or down this past month, democracy starts to sort of fall apart. We don't have a kind of groundwork on which to build our different positions on how best to approach the problem. Hmm. Do you accept the idea that truth is in crisis today? Let's start with that. Okay, that's a that's a sort of a yes or a no question. A tough one. Um, <laughs> Why am I asking a historian? <laughs> can I say yes, but this is not unprecedented? Yeah, well, that's the part that I'm interested in in talking to you about. But we'll come to it. Okay. So you do accept that there is a certain that something is shifted in the political dialogue, let's say in the United States. I would say yes in the United States, and actually yes more broadly, because some of the phenomena, we're, we're talking about domestic politics at the moment, but certainly, you started with populism earlier, certainly the phenomenon of a populist pushback on expert truth, often with good reason actually, 
is something of a global phenomenon now, particularly in large democracies, Brazil, India, Turkey, the United States, perhaps Britain. We're seeing various uh, examples of this. Hmm. And to what do you attribute that change crisis? So like most crises, I do not think there is a single cause. You always need a perfect storm of some kind to get a real crisis. But I can point to some of them, and some of them are are smaller phenomena, and some are much larger. I think at the largest level, we do have a kind of um, a global crisis of both growing inequalities of all kinds, of certain kinds, by which I don't mean always just financial. That's not really what I mean as much as a kind of um, educational, cultural gap so that people often find themselves in very different, living in countries where there's very little commonality among different sectors, combined with a set of problems that often seem intractable, almost impossible for the contemporary political world to deal with in any way. Many of them are are global, ranging from, yes, the warming planet to um, a crisis in immigration and migration around the planet, for instance, that seem almost insolvable. So there's that sort of the big macro picture. But on top of that, we've added new phenomena, including, of course, um, our world of electronic communications, especially social media, which has gotten rid of all of the vetting of information, basically, because most information now circulates in ways in which the wonderful thing is it's more democratic. Everybody has access to a platform. We can speak to each other across all kinds of lines. But rather than that sort of always contributing to democracy, it's sometimes done just the inverse. It's allowed for a lot of bad information to circulate in, in ways in which it's almost impossible for people to distinguish what's good or bad information and also to build coalitions on that bad information, um, not just with somebody down the street, but with somebody halfway around the world. Right. And we've and then we have a political class that is in many cases capitalized on that possibility. Um, so in some sense, taken advantage of both the technology and the larger global situation. And I think it's produced some parallels in many places in which we find both misinformation and disinformation have flourished right along with all that kind of cool data that's right at the right at your fingertips when you look down at your iPhone. Right. The reason I'm interested in this is that we have to talk about Trump, of course, inevitably, because that's that's what the post-truth world has kind of fixated on. But I wanted to ask about the background to it, because I wonder if you think that figures like Trump and Erdogan and Bolsonaro and people like this, do you think that they cause this crisis or that they come out of it and are caused by it? Because the way you've talked about those, the social media, um, the capitalist problems, the political opportunity, those seem to be sufficiently large problems that you cannot blame them all on one figure. It makes much more sense to say the, the particular political figure has arisen out of these problems rather than causing them. Oh, I do agree with that. Yes, I don't think, I think it would be a strange reading of American politics to say everything would be going fine until Trump came in and sort of played with the rules. Um, that doesn't seem right to me, at least. Certainly, 
I would say that some of the figures you've mentioned have exacerbated the situation, but I, I think I would call them more symptoms than causes. Um, I, in other words, if Donald Trump had run for president in 2000, before there was social media, before he was a TV star, it's probably impossible to imagine he would have done as well. There had to be a certain set of factors that made possible something that otherwise people found impossible. And that's true in some other places as well. Uh, Trump is probably the most extreme example. But that said, I think we are in a different situation now than we were even, what is it now, you know, 2016. Yeah. But I don't think that he's the sole cause, no. That is a surprisingly unpopular view among most people of the left. Well, yes, it's a good question. How to, how to put it? I mean, I think there are people on the left who will say that the U.S. has had has some deeper seated issues, that the whole reaction against the Obama years, for instance, um, the changes in politics that happened even in the 1990s, all produced in some ways the Trump phenomenon down the line. Mm. I, most historians do think also that causes are never quite as immediate as simply one person appears and changes the political climate. I'm not underplaying at all, or I'm not trying to underplay anyway, the impact of Trump. Yeah. But I don't see Trump as single-handedly having undone some of the sort of tacit agreements in our political culture. Yeah, and, and this is why I want to try to understand it a bit, because we had the uh, historian Ruth Benriet on the show, mm -hmm. and she does think that the, the Trumpian worldview is stepping towards authoritarianism. You seem less convinced by it. You seem to take the view that an entire system can't easily be changed by one person, regardless of their power or their lies or even their own worldview. That seems like a fair characterization of your perspective, right? Yes. I mean, I don't, and again, I don't want to say that I would be unworried about another Trump presidency. I really would be worried about a Trump presidency if we're talking sort of real, real everyday politics here now. And that's right. not precisely, and not, and I'm not saying this because of which party he's running in. I'm saying this because he seems particularly unwilling to abide by the rules and norms of democratic political life in the United States, Yeah, um, which makes him a more worrisome figure than um, an ordinary right or left politician in that regard. But I'm, I'm, this is where Ruth and I would probably disagree a little bit, is that she really sees the, the central figure of the strong man as the critical piece in the story in every situation. Um, I see a larger set, I think, of factors producing our moment. And I do think that um, the technology and also it's not just the technology itself, but also the law around the technology, because radio is important here, television is important here, the fact that um, all of the norms around our communication systems have changed legally as well as technologically has really changed the nature of political discourse too. I know that you are not a politician, of course, but don't you think that by making the current 
political moment so dependent on so many factors, you remove some of the motivational power of people in believing that they can change things. So, yes, I mean, I, I will agree with you there. Yes. And I'm not, you know, I speak and I'm speaking in this moment less as a voter than as a historian. As a voter, I'm very interested, of course, in what can be done. How do we, before we get to all of our favorite policies we'd like to see enacted, how do we make sure that democracy survives at all? Right. And that is really a ballot box question. We have to have people in office who are committed to democracy and to its norms, whether we like their particular policies or not. That's sort of step one, I think. So I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you here, but as a historian, I, I have to sort of try to explain things, I think, looking a little more broadly than I would if I were, um, say, out campaigning for my favorite mm. candidate. Right. I mean, you certainly seem to be less worried about the future of democracy in an era of basic disagreements over facts. And I guess that must be because you believe the truth has often been up for grabs, that we we overstate how we overstate how historically truth has been settled. We think that there was. Yeah. Well, let me say this. I'm not. I Yes, I, I do think we've always fought about truth, but I am worried today. I am worried. And when I said you asked, was it was there a crisis? Yes, mm. I do think we are in a moment of crisis. I think the situation is definitely worse than it was 25, 30 years ago. So and, and of course, there have been other moments of contestation of the truth. Sometimes it's come from the left. Sometimes it's come from the right. If you go back to the 1960s, for instance, you'd find most of the people doubting official truth were often on the left in the era of the Vietnam War saying, right. we can't trust the CIA. We can't trust the New York Times. Yeah, they're lying. Well, that's to why. Us. Yeah, I mean, that's why these things are so so interesting because when you think about this contestation and what truth is, you really do have to look at the politics. I mean, the the moment you're talking about exactly the Vietnam War, you have another moment in the 1990s about Bill Clinton and his impeachment. You have another moment when it comes to George W. Bush and the war in Iraq. Then you have Donald Trump. It's not that these contestations never happen. It's that they seem to be rooted in particular political contests. That is absolutely true. But I still think that the amount of misinformation and deliberate disinformation circulating today and the reach of it and the uh, the way it's sort of eating at the fabric of our political life is greater than in those moments. So while we're always going to be fighting over what's true and we're in both the moral sense, did, did Bill Clinton lie or not, mm -hmm. in the epistemic sense, were there weapons of mass destruction in Iraq or were there not? That yeah. right, this, Those are sort of different kinds of truth battles. We are in a moment in which truth is harder for groups of people to agree upon. And so we do have to ask ourselves both why and what can be done. And one of the things that I think we're learning is that our First Amendment culture in the United States and maybe free speech culture more broadly in many places isn't it's good for it's good for a lot of things it's wonderful but it's not good for dealing with lying there's no recourse in fact it opens the doors to lies of all kinds and in an when we now have a technology that can spread those lies so quickly and so far and when we have a legal system that has basically let um, 
media companies online operate just as platforms, but without regulating them much beyond that, there's a kind of open door to falsehood that is something people are really not yet able to figure out how to wrap their mind around and what can we do? We don't, mm -hmm. the law doesn't help us much here. The technology doesn't help us much here. Um, we don't have new education systems that are really adapted to this yet. I think we're, we're in a sense catching up with a phenomenon that we didn't know we were unleashing when we did. Yeah, I, I find that, that explanation of it very intriguing because I think there is a lot of dislocation of modern life. And I think those things do have an impact on the way that people perceive um, the truth. We had we had the the political philosopher Leopi on the show, and she was talking about that gap that she experienced between ideology and reality because she was growing up in in communist Albania, and then overnight, you know, the regime fell, and her whole world you had to be adjusted. Now, of course, that's an extreme case, but I think sometimes you see that that idea of dislocation even in modern societies that you that there are lots of people it's hard to put numbers on it but i mean millions and millions living through a period of time where the national narratives that existed in the past are increasingly being questioned and some of that is about what you've talked about capitalism and politics and so on but some of it is technological as you're saying social media and things like that and perhaps in that context it isn't very surprising that you have so much cynicism in such a, a dislocating moment. That's very interesting the way you just put it as a sort of national narratives being challenged. And I do think that's interesting because you might say right now the national narrative in the United States is being challenged on both the right and the left. Hmm. That the sort of um, the, the, the textbook story of the U.S. is being hit on both way on both sides is saying that's not right that's not really what happened in the right. past right. and there's a and the question is is there a right version or is it all politics is any version i tell of the national story politics and i would say that an interesting thing that hannah rent once said about authoritarian cultures particularly you, you based on your last example just now is that in some parts of the world, people grew up, especially in the middle of the 20th century, sort of knowing that they were being lied to all the time, that the national right. narrative was false. And everybody knew it. And everybody right. just went about their business. And they didn't pretend it was real. And privately, you sort of rolled your eyes. In the U.S., we have traditionally not thought of our national story that way. We've There's been a kind of... Um, Oh, I don't want to say naive because that's not really what I mean. But I mean, we've really embraced to a certain sense a, a, a cheerful patriotic story of a right. certain kind. Right. And and nobody thought it was nonsense. It was sort of the, the story we told. And that's under a lot of pressure in in, in a lot of ways right in now. Bo from both sides of the political Both system. sides. Yeah. And we have, we have people on the right saying we've neglected to see that this is entirely a Christian story that we've missed. This is a story that, that actually should have taken place in Christian terms. We have people on the left who said the entire racial story of the United States has been buried under a narrative that simply says we got over slavery and that was a kind of a mistake, but that now we're past that. And both, both sides are, in a sense, saying, you told us the wrong story. Hmm. And, and we were supposed to believe it. And in fact, maybe we even did. 
as opposed to we always knew it was nonsense. It was nonsense. Right. Yeah. But you don't believe that everything is politics, do you? I mean, when you spoke earlier about your work as a historian, you seem to suggest that there is an underlying truth to history that you can uncover. So that's a really interesting question. I mean, historians can't say yes or no to that fully. If you say there's nothing is true at all, then of course you're in the realm of things like Holocaust denial, where we can't ascertain any Thing happened at all. Most historians will say that we use evidence to show that certain things absolutely did happen. Certain people lived, certain people, you know, there are real people, there are not real people, events occurred, and we can give them dates. Now, that's something we can say, I think, is often factual, though those facts can change because people uncover new kinds of evidence. But on top of that, what historians do is interpret that evidence. And that part is aim, the aim is truth, but it's not something one really arrives at. It's much more an interpretive science at that point. Does that make sense as a distinction? It makes sense as a distinction, but I think there's a personal element to it that I was hoping we could explore a little bit. Because you must believe that what you uncover does have the, the quality of truth to it. That you must believe that in some way, whatever it is you uncover um, and that you read about in these sources, that there is something that goes beyond what is being said there. That in some way, what is being said, that version of history that you, that, that, that narrative version of history is in some way, it has a quality called truth. Yes. And I, I, it, I believe that at two levels, I use evidence to make my cases. I don't make up my sources. So... I, I'm, I'm stuck with the record I have, right? I, I, this document was written in this date by this person and with these words, which right. I might quote directly. And then on top of that, I aspire to tell as accurately as I possibly can what happened in the past. And historians, there's a reason historians are not fiction writers is because they have an aspiration to get it right. And they don't have the creative invention as a possibility that the fiction writer has. Mm-hmm. But historians also know that the reason we disagree and we often argue about things or revise things is not simply because new evidence appears, but because things look different in light of what's changed in the world we live in. So for instance, if I'm looking back, I'll take your example before of Ruth Ben-Ghiat looking back at fascism from the, from the position of today, I might look at Mussolini and see something I didn't really notice because I'm living in the world right now where I'm asking a different set of questions than I might have asked 10 years ago. It doesn't mean that I'm changing history to fit the present, but the present is always making us ask new kinds of questions. Uh, You know, we didn't even ask questions like what were women doing in history in the past until we were interested in what are women doing in the world today now? So there's a way in which our questions keep changing, our interpretations keep changing, but we're always committed to the idea that the sort of the holy grail is getting to the truth. How then, in a world where you are trying to uncover so much history and those historical questions are changing, how then do you establish some form of a national narrative? Or a community narrative, even, you might say, rather than making it about particular nations? How do you establish narratives that 
large groups of people, let's say communities or countries, can get behind, can believe? What an interesting question. Of course, that is that is now the, the challenge facing, I think it faces politicians, it faces journalists, it teaches, faces teachers, and certainly it faces writers of history. If, if, if an understanding of the past is what draws communities together, how do you balance the sense that you're looking for both truth and accuracy, but also something that's meaningful to people in the present that allows them to feel like part of an ethnic or racial or religious community or part of a region or place um, or nation. And it's a, it's a very, it's a very interesting and difficult question. Most historians try at this point, not to supply full national narratives, but simply pieces of a story that could be used a lot of different ways. Um, And they try to hopefully help people ask new sorts of questions. So I wrote about truth, for instance, and its relation to democracy, not so much to tell you the truth about truth, which sounds really silly, but more because, and just thinking about your question, because I thought we're talking a lot about truth these days. We know it matters to our thinking about democracy, but how and why? And I don't solve the problem at all. And I don't even try really to solve the problem as much as to open up a series of kind of questions and interpretations that might let somebody kind of take a step back and reflect on the present in a way that, say, a newspaper article, which is just dealing with what's happened this week or this month, can't. So that's my, my I, the long view is one thing historians supply, but it's not really the historian's job to supply, I don't think, a kind of national narrative. Because a national narrative is often something that already has to work within but also against professional history in order to craft some kind of shared sense of values. If you as a historian are merely supplying threads of history, are you not concerned that the people who will tie it together, who are the politicians, will tie it together in a way that suits them rather than that accurately reflects the totality of those threads? Yes, of course, that is the big risk, right? If you if you step away from that job, somebody else will come in and fulfill it. There's mm. a big fight going on right now in the state of Virginia about the standards by which history will be taught in Virginia's schools. And that might sound like an esoteric fight, but actually it's not at all. Mm. It's really about what will the thousands of school children who will one day be voters in that state um, know about their both the global past and their national past. And Historians, the American Historical Association, for instance, is weighing in in that discussion because it knows, and we know, that, as you say, somebody will supply that information. But I don't think that any one, maybe this was the same as when we were talking about scientists earlier, no one person has the expertise to tell the national story properly. But a core of professional historians, a core of trained history teachers, whether that's in public history sites or in classrooms, collectively, in a sense, establishes a certain amount of consensus and also a certain amount of ability to tell students where the arguments are. And what you don't want to do in a national narrative is simply say, this is all exactly how it happened. What you do want to say is, 
we know that, say, the Civil War happened, but we also know that there's been a long, you know, more than 100 years of arguing about why. And here's what the leading arguments are about why it happened or what its effects are or why Reconstruction didn't work, for instance, or why the Civil Rights Movement happened or even why... Um, why were, as you, you asked a historical question a moment ago, why Donald Trump was elected in 2016. All of those places are places where you want to sort of tell students, I think, what happened, but also let them see where there's argumentation. The problem with national narratives is often that they leave the argumentation out and they smooth everything into one sort of set story. For someone who has written a book about democracy and truth at this particular political moment, you seem very optimistic about both of them, both about <laughs> the both about our ability to agree on a set of truths and uncover what truth actually is, and also about maintaining a functioning democracy. Is that accurate? Do you still have <laughs> the optimism? That's funny because I've I've been talking about this a lot in the last few years, and most people have not read me as an optimist. In fact, some people have said that I sound too gloomy, you know, that, I, that I'm that always talking about how we're entering a world with more disinformation, and soon we have deep fakes, and nobody will know anything about anything. So I'm, I'm glad I didn't sound quite as glum as I sometimes have been accused of sounding. Um, I, But a historian cannot be a total pessimist. And why is that? Because what we do see is that even the bleakest historical moments, don't, they don't always resolve for the better, but they change. That change is the one thing we can be sure of is change. And that is, does not mean history always trends in the right direction at all. And there are no pat little kind of moral places I can end with in that sense. But we can't throw up our hands in despair either. And the one good thing I think about, well, there are many good things, but one good thing about democracy is that it is really the system of more chances because nothing is ever set. We're constantly redebating, practically relitigating. We're, we have regular elections. We, as long as we can hold on to a democracy, in some ways, we always leave open the door for improvement. It doesn't mean improvement is what will happen at each interval. But it's always, improvement is always at least a possibility. So maybe that makes me an optimist in the end. Uh, I don't think we're in a particularly good place right now, that's for sure. I don't think this is a moment where you, you'd say, you know, wow, really a gr great resolution to the first two decades of the, tw of the 21st century. But that doesn't make me think that we are opening our arms necessarily directly to for authoritarianism or something much worse than what we have now. I, as, as I could also say to you, historians are better at talking about the past than they are as prognosticators. Sophia Rosenfeld, thank you very much. Thank you. This has been The Lead, the New Lines magazine podcast. You can find Sophia's book, Democracy and Truth, A Short History, at all good bookshops. This week's episode was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Faisal Yafan. For more like this, subscribe to The Lead on your favorite podcast app or visit our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you all for joining us. <laughs>